Hey, welcome back to the podcast, to Hints and Guesses. This is Kent Dobson. I want to try to pick up where I left off in the last podcast, which was a conversation around the true self, the true self and the cult of identity, in which I was uh, relying on, on Thomas Merton and his characterization of the true self. And, and you can listen to it. I think it would, would help. There's a, hopefully there'll be a relationship between these, these two podcasts. And, and um, it was from Thomas Merton that I first heard the phrase, the true self, and, and it awoke in me a kind of longing, and, and it was an alluring phrase, and also kind of disturbing, because that means something like, we have a false self, <laughs> which Merton actually calls, uh, or he says, we dedicate our lives to, to the pursuit of this to the cult of this false self and, and we wrap ourselves in experiences and, and names and identities and proclivities and so that we can become visible to ourselves. And, but it's an illusion and, and to go on the great adventure, the great spiritual adventure is, is to go on the adventure of the discovery of the true self. And, and, and that phrase of course have, has, is now kind of popular and peop- there's a lot of talk about authenticity and vulnerability and, you know, being true to yourself and finding yourself. And Merton places a, a trap door right in the center of all this spiritualish language and he opens it <laughs> or, or he lures us over it at, at, at the very least. And he says, what's, what's, true about the true self is that it's hidden. It's not ours to claim and name and promote and identify as, but it's hidden. And it's hidden in the divine, he says, in God, in the mystery, in reality, with a capital R. He just uses the word God. I'm just spinning out a bit from that. Which is a very different notion to how people often use, including myself sometimes, the idea of the true self or the soul or um, other images or metaphors. He says, it's hidden in the divine. It's like, okay, here's, this is my image. The, the soul or the true self is, is something like a constellation and, and it has a certain shape and there's a relationship between the stars, the points, and, and that's wildly unique. It's our, it's our own experience and um, our wounds and gifts and aims and orientations and yeah it's something like a constellation it appears like it's it's kind of mysterious this the way we are constellated but that constellation is embedded in the night sky in the cosmos in the emptiness in the nothingness in the divine we could say and and merton's kind of straightforward he says when you come to know your true self you come to know god and and if you come to know god you you know your true self and that's not often what we hear of, hear from people around, around the talk of the true self. And it's become a, a, a much more individualistic and in a way even narcissistic kind of pursuit. And so he's warning, he's saying, you, it's hidden actually, it's embedded, it's, in, it's hidden within the mystery of God. And it's very hiddenness means requires a certain kind of caution and humility. Anyway, you can listen to the podcast and but if that's true and if 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 we come to discover something of our of our true self and that very discovery hold hand, holds hands with the divine so to speak, then let's talk about the divine and what do we mean by God then? If 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 the trap door opens and we find ourselves in the, in the divine, well, what do we mean by that? What is meant by God? And, and, and I want to pick up on Merton. And today I want to read a little bit of Merton, and I want to read a little bit of Nietzsche, the, the famous passage around the death of God, because the phrase is familiar, the passage is not, and I think very misunderstood. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not an existential philosopher, and, but I'm, I'm sort of drawn these texts. And so at the very least, I hope to offer some hints and guesses around it. And I also want to read a little bit of Buber, 
because I think Merton and Buber are having a conversation around around uh, the experience of the divine, and and they're saying some similar things, and you'll you'll see what I mean in, in a minute. So <laughs> some kind of some heavy hitters in terms of the things I want to read. But again, I'm not trying to, to be some expert. I'm not an expert, and I'm a student, and I'm offering myself to these really ancient voices. They're coming from a, a long-standing wisdom tradition and a kind of mystical tradition. I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable. The word mystic is being thrown around again right now so-and-so is a mystic i'm a mystic people identifying as a mystic <laughs> that just makes me laugh um but the 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 mystic at least in my understanding is someone who's had an experience of the divine and they kind of don't want to talk about it and they do anyway and and uh and they they sound like they're on the very edge or sometimes beyond the edge of what's acceptable. The acceptable forms and, and names and patterns of the divine there. Their experience disturbs their, their centeredness, you could say, and pushes them out onto the edge. And, and this creates a kind of stream that flows through history and a kind of evolution of the divine and, and or our understanding of the divine and, and it's funny because I think when I was kind of inside the evangelical church and I was, I was sort of sick of talking about God and thinking about God and talking, well, speaking, giving sermons about God, it's like that, that word I didn't want anything to do with. And, you know, I just want to get down, just I want to go on the soul path, you know, and um, just go down into, into my inmost being. Forget all this theology talk here. It's all... It's all straw to to quote uh, who is that? Not Augustine, but uh, Aquinas, I think. Yeah, Aquinas. The end of the his life, and he hasn't even finished his his grand work. He says it's all straw. I think he says that because he's tasted something that cannot be written about. And anyway, my point is, I can't get away from these things, and I think theology is to quote Ken Wilber, the, the highest discipline. So I, I want to, um, you know, try to wrestle with some of these things today coming out of, out of Merton. So, um, okay, let's just get right into the passage. And, and at the very beginning of New Seeds of Contemplation, Merton has quite a, quite a few things to say about that word. And I'm, because the passage I want to read contains the word contemplation. I'll give you a little flavor for what he says. He says, Contemplation is the highest expression of man's intellectual and spiritual life. It is that life itself, fully awake, fully active, fully aware, that is alive. It is spiritual wonder. I, I, I mean, contemplation, the word itself, con with, and you can hear the word temple in there. It's like being with the sacred or with a sacred space or finding yourself contained in a sacred space. And what kind of space? Spiritual wonder. It is spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life and of being. It is gratitude for life, for awareness and for being. It is a vivid realization of the fact that life and being in us proceed from an invisible transcendent, and infinitely abundant source. Contemplation is, above all, awareness of the reality of that source. A relationship, an awareness of, of source, of the infinite and abundant and transcendent reality itself. And and he's saying that really contemplation, it sounds fancy, but it's just gratitude for life and spiritual wonder and spontaneous awe. And, and this is what we're made to do, he's saying. That's why he calls it the highest expression of man's. He uses man a lot in here, but he's, you know, he's writing in the 50s. Humanity's intellectual and spiritual life, it's the highest expression of that. And, and it's not 
In other words, it's not even that fancy. It's not for like the enlightened or the well-read or, you know, this kind of nonsense. And then he has a whole section on what contemplation is not. And he says, you know, he says things like, um, it's not thinking, you know, Descartes, uh, I think, therefore I am. No, it's not, it's not the I that's doing really much of anything. It's the experience of I am, of, of beingness. And, and he says there's all kinds of misconceptions around, around contemplation. And, um, and he finds like the kind of pseudo-scientific definitions just repellent. And, um, and he, says, he says funny things like contemplation cannot be taught. It cannot even be clearly explained. It can only be hinted at. And and he says, and it's not um, prayerfulness. It's not a prayer life, which is funny for him to say. And and uh, one of my favorite sections in here, I'm, I'm still building up to the quote I'm going to read. Is, he says, uh, contemplation is not trance or ecstasy. You know, I kind of thought it was like, like a special spiritual state. And, you know, I've had uh, all kinds of altered states of consciousness, consciousness and they, they have their place. And, and we need altered states of consciousness to break out of the ego's grip. And, but those moments of trance, of ecstasy, of altered state, that's not contemplation. That's not necessarily spiritual wonder, awe, rootedness, gratitude in being as being. So to, to be seized like this, he says, not, not, that's not it either. And there's a kind of letting go of that that happens on the, on the contemplative level. No image, no state, no feeling. And then he goes on, I think, I'm gonna, maybe I'll start here. He says, contemplation is no painkiller. You know, I, I love this because, you know, that's what so much of us want out of, out of a spiritual life is a kind of painkiller. Can it all be union and oneness and light and light and optimism? And he says, no, it's no painkiller. He says, it's a kind of holocaust. What a terrible word he uses here. And in its double meaning, both its original meaning is, is like, a, like a complete consuming offering. And, and you can see why the holocaust in Europe ha has these kind of overtones. They're, it's playing with a certain dark, theme here. What a holocaust takes place in this steady burning to ashes of old worn out words, cliches, slogans, and rationalizations. Oh yeah, so you want to be a contemplative. First of all, that's probably not something you should, maybe you could, I'm going to say you shouldn't want to be. Maybe you should, maybe the longing is important, but a letting go of identifying as one, because what's happening is a steady burning to ashes of all of our old worn out words, cliches, slogans, and rationalizations. The worst of it is that even apparently holy conceptions, H-O-L-Y, sacred conceptions, are all consumed along with all the rest. It is a terrible breaking and burning of idols, a purification of the sanctuary, so that no graven thing may occupy the place God has commanded to be left empty. Holy crap! A terrible breaking and burning of our own idols, a purification of the sanctuary, back to the, the play on templation, you know, contemplation, the temple here, so that no graven thing may occupy the place that God has commanded to be left empty, the center the existential altar, altar which simply is. What? Wh who writes like this? Okay. This is partly what I meant by, okay, the pursuit of the true self, here you are, you bump into a kind of emptiness, a center, an existential altar of isness, which is the divine. <laughs> In the end, the contemplative suffers the anguish of realizing that he no longer knows what God is. Okay, time out here. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know what Merton is talking about here. It's, it's not just a thought. It's like, like, it's more like a dawning, 
like a kind of waking up, a kind of realization, a very subtle realization that I don't know what God is. I don't know what we mean by God. I don't know what I mean by God. And, and, and that's kind of scary terrain. I remember um, when I stepped down from being the pastor at Mars Hill, I had this, I said this in my kind of going away, my I quit talk. I said that we and I no longer know what God is. And, and so it's hard to stand at the center of a place proclaiming things about God when I don't really know what God is anymore. And, and I wasn't saying that because I had read Merton. I had read Merton, but I hadn't read Merton. I wasn't thinking about, I wasn't quoting him, or, or I just was saying, this seems true to me right now. And, and that was very troubling. But listen to what Merton says right after that. He may or may not mercifully realize that, after all, this is a great gain. That's not what I was, I wasn't mercifully realizing this was a great gain. Like, oh, what a gift. I no longer know what, what God is anymore. It, 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 um, it was troubling. I felt like my whole life had to change. My whole life was changing. And, and, and that was really hard. He says, this is a great gain because God is not a what, not a quote thing. That is precisely one of the essential characteristics of the contemplative experience. It sees that there is no, quote, what that can be called God. There is, quote, no such thing as God. Because God is not a what nor a thing, but a pure who. He is a thou before whom our inmost I springs to awareness. This is the I-thou dynamic. I'll come to that in a little bit. He is the I am, or being, I am, before whom, with our own most personal and inalienable voice, we echo I am. This is the true self, the, the soul, the constellation, our wild uniqueness, uttering something like, echoing something like, I am. I am, I am embedded in I am. And the, the, the very nature of that is, is a kind of relational nature between I, thou, rather than I, it. God as thing, God as object, kind of the subject-object dynamic. So, okay, there's a little Merton just to, just to wake us up in the morning here. So maybe the first thing I want to say is, is to rewind a bit and talk about our ancestors. I think a lot of us, we've been influenced by, you know, kind of ideas that our consciousness has evolved by leaps and bounds from our ancestors. I actually have a, I'm not so sure about that, to tell you the truth. I, I'm not sure if maybe even brain, evolutionary brain science here would would back me up. I'm not sure we're really that different than our quote ancestors 5,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago. Maybe something like 2 million years ago. Um, and of course, I, there is a kind of development of consciousness and, and there's a development of technology which changes our awareness about the world. And I do realize that, but I'm not so sure we're on this, you know, higher plane and you know, those, those primitive people that offered sacrifices and thought the gods were mad at them, you know. I think these are caricatures, mostly. And one of the things that we, that we, I should say we think we know about our ancestors is that they, they viewed, and this is crosses spiritual traditions and religions in parts of the world, they viewed the world itself um, as sacred. That the god or gods not only were the source of life, but were, in, were embedded in life, were infused. If you were thrown into the sea, so to speak, you were thrown into Poseidon, the god of the sea, and all of the energies and darkness and mysteries and life forces and, and chaos and order that the human ego has no say in. Yeah, that's, that's to experience what's real. And and our ancestors 
thought about that as, as a sacred uh, relationship. And, and the entire sacrificial systems of the ancient world were expressions of what I like to call sacred reciprocity. It's gift exchange. I think we can fully dismiss the idea that the gods were, were mad and, you know, they're trying to appease them. Here, take a little bit of meat. No, this is most likely a kind of sacred reciprocity, a, a gift exchange. It's an acknowledgement. It's back to Merton saying that life is itself a gift. And when you're really struck by that, you cannot help but give back. And, and, and also, it's very practical. I mean, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement that the waters and the rains and, and the soil and um, the insects and animals, and uh, we're, not, we're not in charge here. We're, we're in relationship with. And, and so... Yeah, I'm going to give back part of what I receive as as a way of of making sacred this relationship and to fall out of a kind of sacred relationship with the earth, with gods, with with God, you could say, is to fall out of out of alignment here. I don't know if you can hear that right now. It's like uh, um, some houses are being uh, built across the street, and they're cutting down these pretty old trees. There's a kind of um, grief here. And, and I'm not a- acting morally superior. I live in a house that was where my, you know, someone before me cut down trees. And um, it's a very beautiful stretch of woods here, but it's just this grinding all day. Just a reminder. And it raises questions of sacred reciprocity. It's like, okay, um, is the world just for our consumption? Is that really the the nature of reality? Is it, you know, there are very revealing terms right now, like the Department of Natural Resources, <laughs> as if the earth and the world is just resources. And even words like sustainable, often that just means like a sustainable this. It's like I want to carry on with my same level of consumption that is often not looked at. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not trying to be on my, you know, kind of morally superior, you know, high horse over here. I'm, I'm a participant in this world. And, and, but, but I think our ancestors would t- be tapping us on the shoulder. I think they are, in fact, tapping us on the shoulder and saying, you have lost a kind of sacred reciprocal relationship with, with the world, with the earth, and therefore with what's sacred with, and with the divine. And maybe what we thought was such an advance, like, okay, we've gotten rid of all superstition. It's just atoms and uh, molecules and particles and quarks and energies and forget about all this. It's not divine. People just didn't know what to call it back then. And now we are able to explain all of this, except if you look carefully at the science, we can't explain most of it, even basic things like time. So... I don't know, we, but there's this idea that we've evolved up out of that. And now what is, the question is, what kind of world does that leave us with? That, well, that leaves us with a world of objects. And objects and things, things among things, and things that are resources, and things that are, can serve us or not serve us, so things that we can use or not use. And, and, and I think, my, my view at least, Although there, there, is, there are advancements, I suppose, with the kind of scientific rationalistic mind that has arisen in the last 500 years, um, there are terrible consequences in the wake of that. I don't, I'm not so sure if it's, if, it's a, if it's a grand evolution of consciousness. I think we've turned our nose up at the sacred and at the divine and at our own peril. And at least part of the task that I'm committed to just as an individual. And, and I think also as a partly why I'm making this podcast and write books and I'm trying to write books and um, leading wilderness retreats. And Oh, by the way, I should do an ad. I have one coming up in October. It's a men's only one. First, first time I've ever done a men's only thing um, here in Michigan. So four days last weekend in October. Um, and I'm, I have, and I've got an Israel trip coming up end of February. So those are my two ads come with me to Israel, come with me on this retreat, you know, go to my website for details. Why am I doing all this stuff? I think in part because um, 
I'd like to come back into alignment with, with the world and with God and with the divine and with sacred and with, with our own truest nature, both personally and, and collectively, and, and much is at stake here. So um, what's my point here? God, so what happened to God in the wake of the thingness of all things? Well, God became a thing among things. Like, okay, well, God must be a thing, and we bend outer space, and we didn't bump into the thing that we called God, and therefore there is no God. And, and we've looked around, and, and now we can explain all the so-called you know, mysteries of, of religion and things like miracles and you know we've looked behind the curtain and like in the wizard of oz and you know, it's just they're just levers and well there's a tiny man there <laughs> pulling the levers i suppose um, that's an interesting image in, in and of itself anyway i don't want to now riff on the wizard of oz perhaps it's a great perhaps it's a, a modern myth for our times i think it probably is so anyway, what happened to God? Well, God became a thing among things, and, and you can believe in this thing or not. I believe in the thing God, and, and, or I don't believe in the thing God. I don't, I, don't, I don't see any evidence, we would say. And I think we're all prone to this. You know, much of the new atheist critique is, is rooted in the kind of thing that I'm describing, the kind of scientific rationalism, and we're going to run God through that. But I just want to hear, I want you to hear what Merton is saying. God is not a what, not a thing. And that is precisely one of the essential characteristics of the contemplative experience. It sees that there is no what that can be called God. There is no such thing as God, because God is neither a what nor a thing, but a pure who, which is why we, quote, no longer know what God is anymore. So it's, it's like a terrible weaning. I talked about that a little bit when I talked about St. John of the Cross um, a while back, a few podcasts ago. God weans us from God, and, and it feels like we're being weaned from uh, this God-as-object kind of stance, kind of posture. So I think this is the bridge that, that uh, brings me to Nietzsche, because um, I want to read the famous Death of God passage because it's related to, to some of these very things like, well, how did God die, <laughs> we could say. In part, I'm suggesting, and you know, those of you who are philosophers might want to push back a little bit and say, it's, maybe it's a little too simple, and I'll grant it, I'm probably being a little too, too simple here. Like everything, there are nuances and complexities, but for the time being, I, I would like to say part of the death of God is because we turn God into a thing. And, and that was a kind of murder here. Now, this is um, from, from straight from Friedrich Nietzsche, the madman. Have you not heard that the madman have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours and ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. And just as an aside, I'll throw in a, maybe an aside or two here. The madman, the crazy person, the wild man, the wild woman, the outsider, the jester, the trickster, they're the truth tellers. I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then. In other words, the world that we live in. Many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, and, and this provoked much laughter. Ha, has he got lost? <laughs> Asked one. Did God get, you know, is God lost? Did he, did he not lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Has he immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. By the way, these are all allusions here to uh, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal because the prophets of Baal are, are mocking Elijah when he's calling out to his God and they say maybe he's gone away on a voyage. He's, he's away on a journey. Maybe he's using the bathroom. That really is in the Bible. Um, the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how do we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? 
What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? You know, this is the, you know, the, uh, the sacrilege. <laughs> That's not even the word, right? The D, making the world less sacred. I can't even figure out the way to, way to say it exactly. Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backwards, sideways, forward in all directions? It's a kind of chaotic lostness. Is, is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? God, this is like, what a passage here. Do we not, do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition for God's to decompose? God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. See, rather than the kind of stupid mockery of Nietzsche saying, God, I don't know know if you remember that t-shirt, you know, God is dead, Nietzsche, and then underneath, Nietzsche is dead, God. You know, it's like, gotcha. This is a failure to face the enormity of these prophetic writings and what we have done to God, both the religious and the non-religious, by turning God into an object, into a thing, into making the world less sacred, into murdering and burying God. And, um, and we have done this. I'm going to finish this. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned and has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? It's like Hamlet, you know. Out, out, damn spot. I think that's Hamlet. What festivals of atonement, what sacred game shall we have to invent? For we have this religious instinct. This is more Jung here. And, and we will invent sacred games, even if they're just uh, fundamentalist ideologies. Is not the greatest of this deed too great for us? Must we not ourselves become gods simply to be worthy of it? Like, won't we have to evolve into into a kind of god, into a kind of divinity, he's wondering here. And by the way, um, this is also, there are theological overtones that are running through this particular line. Like in Orthodox Christianity, you have what's called the divinization of human beings, that the incarnation itself is is a precursor to our own divinization, that we share in the divinity of all things, that, that the I am of God and the I am are somehow one. Are, are, and it's not that just God became man just for the heck of it to, check it, to check it out, but rather so that we would become divine. And, you know, there's not a lot of talk about this, well, unless you're Orthodox. Um, I think most people would want to avoid this, Protestants and probably Catholics, Catholics too. It's like, mm, that makes us a little uncomfortable, but there it is. There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. So he's saying like there's an age coming where, um, where, there, where the decomposition of God, I, I'm, I'm, sort of reading this passage forward, and Nietzsche might say, that's not what I meant at all, that I'll, I'll just try here, that the decomposition of the death of God uh, feeds the soil in a certain kind of way for a, a sort of resurrection. And part of that resurrection is, forces us to rethink what we mean by humanity. I think that's kind of what Nietzsche is, is hinting at here. And of course, rethinking what we mean by God. Here the madman fell silent, and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke into pieces and went out. I've come too early, he said, my time is not yet. 
This tremendous event is still on the way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time, and the light of the stars requires time, and deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars, and yet they have done it to themselves. He's like, I've come too early for, for you all. You don't have ears to hear. That's a phrase from Isaiah that Jesus picks up on. They don't even realize what they've done to themselves, what we've done to ourselves. And, and his warnings here and his crying and his prophetic um, street crying um, ends with a smash lantern on the ground. It has been related further that on that same day, the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem eternum deo. What does that mean? Oh, God. Uh, the funeral of the, the eternal funeral of God led out and called to account. He is said always to have replied, nothing but what after all these churches now, if they are not the tombs and the sepulchers of God. I love that um, the, the atheist, so to speak, just laugh at him and mock him. He says, well, maybe I'll have better luck in the church. And I think he's kind of right about that. W- what better place to talk about the death of God and the experience of, of no longer knowing what God is anymore than, than the church? And, so he, and the church is functioning as a kind of tomb for the divine. And... and yeah, that's the right kind of territory to hang out in. Okay, which leads me to Boober. I told you, some heavy hitters here. And after all, what are we, what are we doing here? We're listening for hints and guesses. What, what strikes you? What pulls you? What, what taps you on the shoulder? So here's a passage from, from I and Thou, and this will take us back to Merton. So I'm sort of saying, okay, in light of this and the murdering of of God as thing, God as object, you know, the old man in the sky. Yeah, I was I was listening to someone, someone I respect actually quite a bit, a comedian, and he was saying, you know, he was asked if he believed in God. He's like, well, I don't believe in an old man in the sky, and 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 I want to. Yeah, part of me says like. Yes, at this point, this is a straw man. Like nobody believes in an old man in the sky. I mean, even the fundamentalist Christian—they're more sophisticated than that. Try one time to talk intelligently about the Trinity with with a believing Christian, and and you're right on the doorstep of mystery anyway. So, old man in the sky. I mean, talk about you know nobody believes in the old man in the sky. Not after Nietzsche, you know. Um, we're, we're forced into the deep end of the pool here. Okay, so here's Buber. The life of human beings is not passed in the sphere of transitive verbs alone. It does not exist in virtue of activities alone, which have some thing for their object. Thing is uh, in italics here. Listen, listen to these words here. I perceive something. I perceive something. I am sensible of something. I imagine something, I will something, I feel something, I think something. The life of human beings does not consist of all this and the like alone. This and the like together establish the realm of it. This is what the the calculative mind, I might even say ego consciousness, and I don't mean ego in in a negative way here, the I, that's all ego means, it's the Latin word for I, we think this is the primary dynamic of of reality. I perceive something, I'll just, you know, use more contemporary, I think something, I feel something, I am something, I know something, I believe something, I stand for something, I know something. Because all that is still in in the realm of I and it. But the realm of thou has a different basis. Okay, so the realm of of it, there's truth to that. There's it's it's real. But there's another realm, which is the realm of the thou, and it have a has a different basis. When thou is spoken, 
You already can feel the sacred, the, re the return to the sacred here. When the thou is spoken, the speaker has no thing for his object. For where there is a thing, there is another thing. Every it is bounded by others. It exists only through being bounded by others. So we keep it, it's it among it. But when thou is spoken, there is no thing. Thou has no bounds. When thou is spoken, the speaker has no thing. He has indeed nothing. He takes his stand in relation. So Buber is saying the, the, the right kind of spiritual posture toward reality, or I don't know if he would say the right, but um, the, um, a possibility exists that, that we stand in relationship to what is through the thou, through a kind of sacred stance, rather than the, the stance of objects. And if I could just back way up, we know this in human relationships. It's like, do you really think about your partner, your spouse, your lover as just an object, an it that fulfills your needs or doesn't fulfill your needs? You know, that, that already feels kind of gross. No, the it over there, there's, there's another way of standing. And if I stand in relation to the other as thou, I'm standing in a kind of sacred, reciprocal, dynamic relationship. And then the whole world blooms. Then the rose unfolds. And that kind of posture is the sort of spiritual posture that Buber is saying is coming up out of the, the mystical Jewish tradition. But we could say of, of all of the great spiritual traditions that it's about relationship. And when we have lost our capacity or ignored or suppressed or outright mocked our capacity to stand in a sacred relationship, in a thou re relationship to reality, the whole world gets, gets turned upside down and then everything is just objects. And we can use them for our will or discard them. It's a kind of meaningless vortex, the kind of thing that Nietzsche was talking about you know, what kind of world does this leave us? It's a world of coldness. It's not a dynamic world, we could even add a word here, of love. Love is only possible when you're standing in relationship, when thou is present. And, and this capacity is, is the, the right kind of spiritual posture. It's the kind of spiritual posture we need in the 21st century if we're going to make it to the 22nd century. And you don't even have to be particularly religious. You don't even have to, quote, believe in God. You just take your stand in relationship in the world as I, thou. And how would you do this? Well, with your, with your kids and with your partner and with, I don't like the word partner. It's like people say that because they don't want to use marriage because marriage is patriarchal, right? And then instead they use a, the same word that a law firm is going to use. This is my partner, you know? Anyway, no offense if you use that. I get, I get it. Yeah, but your partner's not an it, and your kids aren't its, and the world is not an it, and the trees they're cutting down right now in my, in my, across the street, is, it's not an it. And I would even say God is not an it. So the encouragement here is to take your stance, to take a kind of sacred stance in the world. And if, I, and if we come back to Merton here, just to remind ourselves, um, okay, so God, if God is not a what or a thing, that is precisely one of the essential characteristics of the contemplative experience. It sees that there is no what that can be called God. We can just let it go. We don't have to argue. We don't have to say, you know, five arguments for the existence of God. You know, I, I, those might have a place because I think the mind and the scientific mind needs to engage. I mean, we can have a conversation between rational scientific thought and theology and things like this. Okay, fine. But God is not a what. This is, you know, these are the mystics tapping us on the shoulder. Don't forget, God is not a thing. 
that is precisely one of the essential characteristics of the contemplative experience. It sees that there is no what that can be called God. There is no such thing as God. Do you see how we can be almost playful with this? Yeah, there's no such thing as God. You know, that's a deeply, in a way, religious claim here. Because God is not a what or a thing, but a pure who. He is the thou before whom our inmost I springs into awareness. So here, I think Merton is dialoguing with Buber here. And he's saying the thou is not a thing, but a relationship before whom our inmost I springs to awareness. The awareness of I, the awareness of our own I am, our own beingness. He is the I am before whom our own most personable and inalienable voice we cry i am maybe i mean this is kind of a hope i hope um you and i are able to taste a bit of what merton is hinting around here about something that he says i can't even really talk about i can't really explain to you contemplation it's an experience of i am embedded in the larger i am and talk about a kind of freedom a kind of a freedom that we all crave. And, and it's a freedom rooted in experience, not so much in thought or argument, we might add. So, okay, what am I... I want to say, you know, I've read a lot of rich passages. That's my feeling here. And you might, if, you're, if you start to hear a hint or a guess, you might want to rewind the, uh, you know, these these passages as I, I, as I read them and let them work on you and let them bother you, trouble you, call to you, speak to you. I think both our resistance and our attraction are, are important here. You know, I can feel my own resistance arising in some of what I'm reading and I can feel my own attraction and bringing some conscious awareness to this and just giving it time. These things take time. It's like, um, I think, Here's my modern way of thinking about contemplation. Contemplation is a frequency on the radio dial, the old school radio dial that you're flipping, you know, you're flipping that knob and most, it's mostly static and every once in a while something comes through like a, a little, you know, Bach melody. There it is. And, and if you can learn to turn the dial a bit and you're patient with turning the dial, the melodies, I think, come through and there's a kind of resonance, a deep resonance in the inmost being, in our own true self, and which touches the divine, according to Merton. And, and <clears throat> I think that's, that's what I mean by spiritual life, and is turning that, turning that dial. And so here, I guess here are my three points. That um, the idea that we don't know what we mean by God anymore is a great invitation. It's a great invitation. I, I don't personally celebrate, celebrate the decline in church attendance and people claiming to be, you know, not religious anymore and so forth. And, um, and you know, because I think there's, there's a great cultural loss that we are experiencing and feeling. I, I don't jump up and down and say, hooray, you know, we're all becoming spiritual but not religious. I, I don't particularly resonate with that phrase anymore. And um, But my point right now is saying that that when we say genuinely we don't know what we mean by God anymore, it's a great invitation to go deeper, deeper into the question and not, not just to hang out in shallow expressions of, well, you know, uh, nobody's sure about anything. I'm not sure about anything anymore, any, anyway. I don't even know what truth is. And we kind of sink into this sort of nihilistic malaise. And, and I'm suggesting what we don't know, when we say we don't know what we mean by God anymore, let's let's go deeper let's let's turn that frequency let's turn the radio dial some and don't just go along with lazy ideas lazy practices or the lack of practices and but to move ever closer to a word like surrender what if we surrendered to this not knowing and how might that reshape what we think of as the i I think, therefore I am, and the I think is the thing that gets worked. And perhaps we come to experience and realize a, 
a kind of I amness, but it's going to require surrender to get there. Okay, that's my first sort of concluding point. My second one is something like this, that the path to the true self, which I think is the most noble, and we're on, we're on it. This is the great adventure. This is the adventure of adventures. This is even more adventurous than Joseph Campbell saying it's the hero's journey is the great adventure. Um, the hero's journey is, is points toward the, this deeper adventure of the path to the true self and our true constellation, uh, to the soul, in other words. And, but it requires, at the very same time, a deeper relationship with mystery, with God, with reality, with a capital R. That's, that's um, Evelyn Underhill's, the, um, she's a mystic in her own right. That's her phrase for God reality with a capital R. And, and let's not separate out these worlds like, you know, I'm all about my inner journey. Let's recognize that that's in dialogue with, with the cosmos, with eternity, with the transcendent, with the mystery. You know, it's like that, <laughs> I just thought of that old school, like, uh, you know, in, in the Baptist circles I grew up in, the, you know, the phrase was, how's your walk with the Lord? You know, friend of mine still calls me and that's often what he'll say. He's like, hey, how's your walk going, man? And it's, it's funny. I mean, we're kind of mocking that sort of thing, but there's also like some profound truth to that. Like, well, how is your walk going? What is your relationship like with God? I remember my, my analyst used to say to me, you think you left the church. First of all, you haven't. You can, you know, can argue all day long. You haven't. I don't know if it's something you can leave. She was a very troubling analyst. <laughs> Um, is a very troubling, and um, and she would say you need you need a you need a theology you know you need to wrestle m- more directly with God, not think that you're beyond it or have left it or or you're dissatisfied with your traditions, you know doctrine statements and as if you're above them. Uh, okay, time for a real wrestling match. You know what is your actual experience of God? You know get with it. Yeah, how's your walk with God? So, and and partly I mean a personal relationship, you know, with with I suppose it maybe also a transpersonal relationship. It doesn't have to be solely privatized, but yeah, what is your personal relationship with with mystery? Find a practice, find a community, find a teacher. You know, that's James Finley's advice, and um, and that can help form and shape and give us a kind of container to respond to. We don't have to go on the, the great conversation of the divine alone. You know, we have all of our ancestors and all of these traditions and all of these sacred texts and all of these communities that are, that are trying, that, that are wrestling with God. I mean, that is the very name, that is the meaning of the name Israel. You know, Jacob, the, the deceiver, the heel grabber, the clinger, who's trying to make reality into the way that he wants it to try to, to get a blessing, that kind of grasping, clinging, egoic persona that we all have, you know, that has to break and be wounded and, and broken in the hip. And, and out of that emerges Israel, the one who wrestles with God. And yeah, so let's wrestle. Let's wrestle with the divine. That's, and what a great invitation and part, part of that for me means wrestling with my own tradition. I have to. It's like we can never forget that Jesus was a Jew, you know, and, and Judaism or Judaisms, because there were really multiple expressions of Judaism in his day, it was, was a kind of container, and he was in a wrestling match with that. And, um, and that's part of the color and the flavor of his own experience of, of the great mystery of the divine, of his own sonship. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me, you know. Whoa, you know, holy crap. You know, and he's saying this inside his own Jewish container. Wow. Okay. Here's my point number three. The I thou is the path. And it doesn't have to sound so philosophical or it, we can take it in its most simple and straightforward form here. I thou is the path. You know, what would it look like for, for me to change my relational stance with just a single person or with my own life or with my own job or with my own kids or 
with my own family and um, and with my own yard and my garden and you know my own relationship with the divine. I that was the path and and this makes the world sacred again. You know, make make the world sacred again. Put that on a red hat. Yeah, make the world sacred again. It already is sacred. It's just we're so um, out of practice and we're moving spiritually backwards in that in that sense and and we're just too blind to notice that that the thou is ever present and um yeah i think the darkest critique that our culture has right now is that particularly human beings, civilizations, cultures, genders. It's all about power and violence and domination and, um, and resource scarcity and, um, and a, a limited, um, yeah, the, I guess a sort of limited scarcity and, and really we're dealing with a dog-eat-dog, uh, violent, uh, evolutionary food chain um, reality. And I think that's a world that's robbed of the sacred. And that's a stance that we're prone to fall into in the modern world. And, and it's something we have to swim against. We have to go upstream you know, or some other metaphor, you know, and just to flow in this direction, the world becomes, I think, more dangerous and more chaotic and, and darker and, um, and I thou is the path and, um, and I think it's, so, I mean, I suppose you could ask yourself, what, what would that mean if I, if I spoke thou and stepped into a relational field, a reciprocal relationship field with my own life. What would change? What would change? What would change? Let's say I'm even arguing with someone about something that I think is important and they think is important, and, and I can feel the pull of our culture to scapegoat and blame and to divide the world up to us versus them, to the righteous and, and the non-righteous, to the pure and impure. And as soon as we're there, the thou has evaporated. We're in the world driven by it, and our taste and proclivities and ideas, and the other it's out there are objects. And, and if we follow that all the way to, to its rightful place, that it doesn't have the right to exist. And it would be better off if that it was not present. That's really, honestly, I can hear that in the political rhetoric. It's just right around the corner from the extreme right and the extreme left. And we've lost all sense of the sacred. We've lost the thou. We've lost our common, shared, precious humanity embedded in a common, precious, living, breathing web of life, which is embedded in a living, breathing thou cosmos which our ancestors called the divine so that's where i want to leave it thanks for listening i mean really i'm feeling kind of inspired lately i know it's kind of a long podcast but um i got a bunch i want to make here and had kind of a quiet summer and that happens sometimes and so things are percolating again so expect to see some more podcasts so thanks for listening thanks for passing this around to your friends i wish you would pass it around even more and uh, special thanks to my patrons who have all people who just generously support what I do it's like it means a lot to me it makes this happen I, you know I just got another, another series of emails about costs going up for all these sites and uh, you know the things that make a podcast happen so you're paying for it and I can't thank you enough um, so really appreciate that so thanks for for supporting me, even if it's a dollar. And those of you who are on up way higher than that for a podcast that 
comes out every once in a while. Really grateful. And again, check out my website, kendobson.com, for future things like my upcoming four-day intensive retreat around the sacred masculine and my upcoming Israel trip. I hope you can join me in person. Would love that. Hope to see you down the road. Peace.